Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to video number 75 and audio season four, episode seven of Music Is Not a Genre. Uh, thank you to everyone who supports and listens, uh, especially those of you on patreon.com slash music is not a genre. I appreciate uh, everything you do for me there. Uh, if you are listening and not watching, then you are hearing it because I distributed through Anchor, and uh, you can go to anchor.fm slash music is not a genre and uh, throw in any donation amount there. Everything that you do helps to support this podcast and everything I do, and uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, and as always, you can see me on youtube.com slash Nick DiMatteo and elsewhere. And uh, today, uh, well, let's get to it. This is going to be an interesting one. I'm, uh, as I mentioned in the first uh, episode of this season, I'm thinking of doing a bunch of changes and things like that, kind of keeping to the core, but adding a few things here, shifting a few things there. And this is maybe, I would say, the first podcast of this season where that's very, very evident. The topic for this week is Fat Boy Slim and, and Last Night a DJ Saved My Life are DJ's artists. So... Let me just right off the bat tell you what's going to happen in this podcast that might be different from the other episodes that I've done, any of them really. Uh, first, I will be talking about the artist, which in this case is Fatboy Slim, or Norman Cook, or however you want to call him, and, and all of that, the two CDs of his that I own, and through the music, and, and et cetera, et cetera. I am also going to be, for the very first time, talking about a book. And as I mentioned in that first episode of this season, uh, I, I've read a lot, well, I didn't say this, but I've read a lot of books on music. Uh, some of them have been novels, most of them have been nonfiction, and uh, this book here is one of them. Uh, if it looks a little thin here, uh, those of you viewing me, it's because this is actually just a picture of the cover because I lent it to my father, who's reading through this entire thing, and we've been having discussions on that. And I had thought before this season started that a great way to introduce review, reviewing a book in Music Is Not a Genre is to tie it to an artist. And in this case, this makes perfect sense, because this book is all about DJs, and Fatboy Slim, of course, is a DJ, but also was quoted quite often in this book. And then the other thing that's going to be different is I'm talking all the time about how important uh, my music is to me, my band rec. And uh, at the end of almost every episode, I connect 
what we're talking about here to my music in some way. And uh, I listened back to a couple episodes of my podcast this past weekend, as well as uh, having done that uh, first uh, edition of the interview this season with Catherine. Hopefully, if you haven't seen it or heard it, please do. That was really fun. She asked great questions. And those two things made me realize that I'm only kind of slightly putting my money where my mouth is when it comes to that. So towards the end of the podcast, or the last third or whatever you want to say, I'm going to be spending a little bit more time on how this connects to my music and what that means and maybe even dissecting a song or two. So that's, that's the layout here. So let's get to part one. Part one, which is all about the House Martins. Yes, that classic band. I know anytime you hear a House Martins hit on the radio, it just takes you back to the time when you still also had no idea who the House Martins were. Um, they were a 1980s, uh, what, what you'd call jangle pop band. And if you're not sure what that is, think of the Smiths, but a little maybe happier. And that's kind of the House Martins sound. Uh, they had a few UK hits. I don't think it went beyond that. Their biggest hit was actually a cover a song called Caravan of Love by Isley Jasper Isley, which was a short-lived offshoot group from the Isley Brothers. And side note there, and the reason why I bring this up, uh, I don't own any Isley Brothers material, but I may end up talking about them at some point because I bumped into them for, I forget why, and I didn't do a chronography of them, but I listened to a lot of what they did, like Greatest Hits and, and a few things here and there. And, uh, or did I? I don't remember. But uh, what I found was, first of all, they started in the late 50s, and, and you have like, uh, Twist and Shout was one of their big hits, and, um, you know, the song from uh, Animal House, uh, Shout, I guess. Yeah, that song, I think that's what it is. And had hits in the 60s, had hits in the 70s, had hits in the 80s. They've, they have done some things beyond that. They are still together. Not every one of them is alive, but they are still together, their core, which means they have been making hits and music for over 60 years. How many other bands or families can say that? So that's just a side note. And the House Martins cover of Caravan of Love is fully a cappella. And I bring that up because it reminded me just uncannily of this other British band, The Future Heads. I would be surprised if they didn't somehow listen to the House Martins or were in, or maybe that's just in the ether over there. But they, Future Heads did a, a follow-up to one of their big albums, was an a cappella album. And it sound, it's amazing how much that sounded like that. It just kind of struck me. So anyway... If you're into the Smiths, but maybe you want to be a little happier, look up the House Martins and uh, then go look up Future Heads. It's a band I'm going to be talking about in a future episode, Future Head episode anyway. Uh, and why am I talking about the House Martins? Well, because their bass player, I believe, was a guy named Norman Cook. Somebody else whose name you probably don't know, other than me mentioning it already in this podcast, and that's because, of course, uh, 10 years after that, he changed his name, his stage name to Fatboy Slim, and that's how we know him. So Fatboy Slim, Norman Cook, was born in 1963, uh, and like so many people who land on one kind of music, his history is many kinds of music, 
uh, he did, uh, he was in punk bands. He was in the Jangle Pop band, the House Martins, and uh, was a bass player, was a drummer and all of that. He did DJ throughout. I think he had been interested in DJing even from the 70s. And for that time, from what I gather, his name was DJ Quentox. Awesome, for some reason. Don't know why. And, of course, you know, did what he did with the other bands. But then when the House Martins broke up and all that happened, he shifted back to DJing as his main thing and formed this loose collective called Beats International, which uh, had some hits. Uh, I, for some reason, did not put down what they were. Uh, but you can look them up. It's a, it, they actually were mostly UK hits, uh, and they were used in. Uh, the, I think one was used in a commercial. And what happened was the sampling was huge then. So those of you who are watching on video, you're going to see a few things here. First of all, I have my turntable open because it's about DJing. This is not a, maybe a turntable you would DJ with. I gave away all my turntable DJs a long time ago. I have my headphones there holding the paper, which is the cover of the book. I have the two CDs. I have this little guy in the middle who's got this giant cap and his face is a speaker. So that's that something, right? It's connected. And then underneath that, I have a classic keyboard, the Casio SK-1. And the Casio SK-1 was the first keyboard I ever owned. This is not that one. Friend, I, I traded that one away for some dumb reason, for some not great keyboard. But uh, that was college. And a friend of mine, uh, Daniel Cousins, bought this one for me as a replacement. I, I think he found it on eBay or something. And that's here because this is how huge sampling was back then. It had gotten to the point where it was affordable to anybody. And in this case, sampling, you'd record a snippet of your voice or other, another sound, and then you could play it on the keys here at different pitches. And so many, I mean, I came to how many songs used that in the 1980s, especially that particular kind of sampling. But the other kind of sampling that was used a ton, especially in the mid, late 80s, early 90s, uh, and beyond, but we'll talk about why I stopped there, it was sampling actual recorded material from other artists. Now, sampling is a long history. I talked about it in a different episode last season when I was talking about uh, dance music and DJing, I think, or something like that. I, I do not recall. And you can look it up. A lot of good episodes out there. And uh, it did, but it didn't become a thing in the pop world really until the 1980s. And it spread everywhere. And it wasn't just in hip hop. It was in other kinds of music too. But hip hop really kind of took it to where it would end up, you know, or where it was headed. And the thing then is, it was so new that it was unregulated. So record companies and copyright laws and things hadn't caught up to the use of snippets of previously recorded material. So a lot of artists were able to put together the, you know, their sampling, uh, whatever it was they were doing on their recordings without having to clear rights for anything. And people would use 10, 20, dozens, hundreds of samples on the stuff they were doing. 
and there were no initially no lawsuits, things like that. And now I remember it was da- the Danger Mouse episode where I was talking about his uh, Grey album and sampling and how that was had to be free because by the time he released it, um, he couldn't couldn't clear all the samples that he got from Jay Z and the Beatles. Anyway, any Ray because that's a word now. Uh, this applies to Norman Cook because when he was in Beats International, he had this big hit and got sued. And this was right when a lot of those lawsuits were coming about and the kind of case law was being established, the precedent for future use of samples. And a lot of artists and producers and such were being sued. And he lost his case and it bankrupted him. Beats International folded. I can't say if that's why, but I am suspecting that's partly why. And he moved on to create other groups, one, Freak Power. And I listened through to some of this stuff. Uh, the song Turn On, Tune In, Cop Out, very cool, it was a big hit. Uh, then a band called Pizza Man, which had three hits, Trippin' on Sunshine, Sex on the Streets, and Happiness. And like his other incarnations, a lot of this stuff was beginning to be used commercially, in commercials and for other themes and things like that, because he was tapping into a sound that was still then really underground, but was finding a way to make it uh, mainstream and accessible even really before it was. Then there was the band Mighty Dubcats, which he did back in the early mid-90s and returned to after that. They had a hit with the song Magic Carpet Ride. Uh, then, and I'm skipping through all this for many reasons, but it's mainly because his big breakout success was, of course, when he changed his name in 1996 to Fat Boy Slim. Uh, he re- released an album called Better Living Through Chemistry. And great, that to me set the precedent for what he was ramping up to do, which I would describe as I guess you could say intelligent dance music and I know that's loaded I know it's very loaded but what I'm what I'm thinking there is this when you're in a club and you're experiencing uh, the the rush of dancing with dozens or hundreds of other people and the DJs propelling you along with music you may or may not be intoxicated in some way and all of that it is a zone you're in and in that zone it's similar in a way to the, like, say, stoners who listen to Pink Floyd or the Grateful Dead. That music of that kind, either kind, does not necessarily have to be intricate or varied in many ways, and often would maybe suffer if it was, because the way it's being absorbed is such that it's creating a mood, an atmosphere, a zone, and all of that. And that is very true for much of dance music, not all of dance music. I've talked about this in previous episodes. I believe that Norman Cook uh, structured his songs like songs, created many movements within the songs, A, B, C sections and things like that, to where even though he had all of the classic elements of electronic dance music and even created some of those uh, eventually classic elements, he didn't just rely on the repetitiveness and, the, and, to me, the necessary repetitiveness in some ways of that kind of music. He added more to it. And I can get into that a little bit more if I can find it in my notes and want to get to that point. But that, to me, is what he started establishing uh, with Better Living Through Chemistry. And then, of course, here, pointing 
like a terrible weatherman, You Come a Long Way Baby, 1998, was the album that broke him out internationally, became a super superstar, one of the first superstar DJs, and um, the album that uh, opened me up to him. And if you don't know it, it will be the best place to start, I think, still. Uh, the songs that really hit big there would be Right Here, Right Now, which I believe, looking back, is probably my favorite. I think it, it was then, maybe even, and it's partly because of how dramatic it is. There were things that Kanye did on his earlier albums in particular that had that same kind of buildup of drama and, again, you know, very distinct sections that, that, that wove together in, in this case, into an amazing dance music, electronic dance music. Uh, Rockefeller Skank, uh, check it out now, Funk Soul Brother. And then Praise You, which I think was the biggest hit off of that. And this brings up well, something I just talked about, which is sampling. Because he had, I think, gotten away from it a little bit, or at least uh, was a little gun-shy through the middle 90s. When he got back to this... There's samples everywhere. So, A, you know that he was wealthy enough to clear the rights and be able to use them, but, but B, he established that sampling wasn't going anywhere, that, that it would become even bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and this song helped move that along in a huge, huge way. I looked it up, and I don't know if this is all the samples in the song, uh, I know I remember when I was talking about Big Audio Dynamite and I talked about the song Rush and how I think there were a couple dozen samples in that. And that was back when samples were, you know, still a little bit wild. This one has quite a few. And the main one is the vocal from a song called Take Your Praise in 1975 by Camille Yarbrough. Yar- Yarbrough. And then uh, there's a song, the piano part is from a JBL test album used to be something that happened, called Balance and Rehearsal, it's a song, and then there was actually that, that plinky guitar part was from a Mickey Mouse disco version of It's a Small World, which now I have to look up and listen to, absolutely just have to, and then the part in the breakdown section was from the theme to the animated show Fat Albert, and you can hear all these very clearly in this song, unlike some songs using samples, they weave it in a different way. He really made a point of, you know, making these stick out uh, very differently from how Moby used samples. And I have a Moby album, and I'm going to talk about Moby in the future, and you'll see maybe a difference in attitude when I do. Uh, but that's that's why I chose Fatboy Slim first. Uh, I think, well, and, and this, uh, this, I want to bring this up for a couple of reasons. One, because it connects to my music, but two, because it became a huge thing it was, he wasn't the first one to do it, but I believe he was the first one to popularize it. And then others like Skrillex and people beyond that used it everywhere to the point where then it stopped being used because it became a bit of a cliche and now it's being used again in some ways. It never stopped fully, but you know what I mean, it kind of comes in and out. And that is rolling the filter, opening up the filter, which DJs had been doing for a long, long time. Uh, this book I read, as a matter of fact, Last Night a DJ Saved My Life talked about how many of those early DJs, when they started to want to manipulate the sound and not just play songs, would, when, when the mixers became capable of doing that, which was really in the 1970s, would roll off all of the treble so you could only hear the bass thumping. 
and then they may weave in another song on top of that, or they may not. They, or they would just pop through the treble, so you could feel it, feel it, you know, and, and the tension was rising, the tension was rising, and then bring the bass back, and, the, and it drops, and you're just pounding there on the dance floor. Extremely effective. Uh, Catherine talks about it all the time. She was a fitness instructor, and how important those moments are in songs like this. And so that was done live all over the place. Fatboy Slim was one of the artists who, who did it on recording and made it into a production value that, to me, kicks ass. And it's when you hear, and I'll see if I can do it, when you hear, you know, it's going like this, 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 you know, and it, open, and it opens up. That's, to me, I call that rolling the filter. I have always loved that, and I used that in a song of mine that is absolutely not a dance song, and that was the point, was to show that genres can cross over, that music is not a genre. And it's a song from my band Rex album, Parts and Labor, called If It Feels Alright. And I have the link down there below. It's the second song that I linked to. Not the main one I'm talking about, but this is the point I'm making. If you listen through two, two verses, two choruses, then there's a solo. After the solo, everything drops down. And there is a, a kind of an audience participation part where a bunch of people are screaming the word all right, etc., etc. But it starts with the filter rolled all the way down, so you can only hear it as a muffled sound, and then it opens up, opens up, opens up, opens up, until boom, the chorus drops and the rest of the song happens. And that was a thousand percent influenced by Fatboy Slim and other people who use that filter roll. Uh, so there's that. Then the next album right here, pointing very inappropriately, Halfway Between the Gutter and the Stars, which I liked. And, you know, You've Come a Long Way, Baby, Blew Me Away in a way that I don't know if any other album of his or anyone else's could. So that's hard to live up to. But he had a huge hit, Weapon of Choice, which had an amazing Christopher Walken uh, video, which I believe won awards. And it was a solid, very, very, very solid album. A little more uh, contemplative in some ways. He was starting to weave in, A, some of his older influences, but B, places where he would go uh, with his music, which, which is a little broader, a little deeper, and things like that. Now, for me, what happened was, I guess at the time I was looking for more of, you know, you've come a long way, baby, and there was some of that in there, and wanted it to hit, hit, hit. And he was more expansive with the sound, which in hindsight is wonderful. And he continued to do that throughout his career. But I once did a podcast episode on what I called heart artists, uh, which I described as the artists that no matter what they do, they're always with you and you're always with them. This is how you know when an artist is becoming a heart artist for you is when they take a turn in their career and you, you may not have wanted them to take that turn. You may not be fully into that turn, but you go with them anyway. You absorb it, and you eventually end up liking it and maybe even loving it. So many bands that I've followed have done that. Prince did that several times. Uh, but being a hard artist, I'm like, I'm going with you, trusting you, and the trust paid off. In this case, not having known Norman Cook's work for very long, he hadn't sunk in in a certain way, or whatever the reasons, when this album hit, I was like, okay, cool. And now I've kind of had enough, and then I, you know, moved off. And up until recently, I didn't listen really to any of his other work. But that was a moment in time, taste chains, etc. 
and of course he's one of the greatest at what he does. Uh, and he continued to do it. He did more Fat Boy Slim with the album Palookaville, which I hadn't heard till recently. I love the song Slash Dot Dash. Uh, there was more singing on this album and more kind of hip hop to it and more songwriting, you know, stuff and some collaboration. And kind of wished I had stuck with him because I think I would have loved that album when it came out. Uh, then he released uh, what they was considered a comeback single in 2013 called Eat, Sleep, Sleep Rave, Repeat. And also did some stuff under the name Fatboy Slim as recently as last year with the album Back to Mine, which is a bunch of mixes and remixes of other songs. Uh, another thing that I'm just going to bring up, he did a thing with his daughter last year during the pandemic, which really touched me because anytime I see an artist working with their kids, something that I don't get to do as often as I'd like, it's, it just uh, hits, hits me right in the heart. It's, I mean one of the greatest things you can imagine. It's happened, you know, thousands of times. But to see it like that, I really loved it. He also did some bands in between all this called Brighton Port Authority. He did more under the name Mighty Dubcats. And he did lots of remixes for artists like Corner Shop, one of my favorites who I will be tearing apart in a future podcast, A Tribe Called Quest, uh, a band that I have listened to recently because of the Rolling Stone Top 500 and need to get way more into. And the Beastie Boys, one of my favorites, which you should know if you've been listening to me. He also collaborated on an Amelda Marcos musical with David Byrne in 2010 called Here Lies Love. I remember that musical. I forgot that he was a part of it. Uh, I never saw the musical, but I remember the musical existed because it was such an interesting topic to me. And the thing I'll say about this takeaway from all this is that no matter what Norman Cook does under whatever name, he is always exploring, always expanding. He's throwing in things like samples and funk and electronic and rock and glitch and world and ambient and spoken word and beyond all of that and still adds the texture and structure and drama of songs that go beyond the dance floor. He's, he's been very good at recontextualizing music from outside of the dance world, from music, uh, from, uh, you know, older music, as, you know, things samples do. I call it party music with an eclectic brain behind it. Uh, he is a DJ. He's also a musician, and he is an artist. And this is a, this is a, a statement that is controversial, to some people. It's in the same way that uh, when hip-hop was slowly being accepted, a lot of traditional musicians and music fans would say hip-hop's not music and they'd have their reasons why. Uh, Ridiculous, but right. DJing, same thing. There are a lot of people that believe, well, what a DJ does is play other people's music, so how can that be artistic or how can that person be an artist? Now, I've been a DJ since I was a preteen, I, I would use two cassette players or, or I would make mixes or I would love to string one song after another and all of that stuff. And I even understood then there were many ways to DJ in that, and here's some, uh, playing only the hits, what people want to hear. Playing the hits but throwing in maybe a surprise song or two. Uh, maybe from a different genre or, or something that people hadn't heard in a while, or playing just obscure tunes, which is part of what this book I'm going to talk about soon went into. Play a mix of genres or just play all one kind of music. Play standalone songs. So you play a song, you stop and talk and say, hey, that was a song by artist. And then, or crossfade it 
and beat match, which is something that came about in the late 60s, especially into the 70s. And, um, and that became really what DJing, you know, would grow into. Uh, create remixes of existing songs, whether existing dance songs or non-dance songs, and create them in the style of a dance song, something that was huge, that's been huge since the 70s. Create entirely new mixes and remixes, things that hadn't existed before, so you are creating new music, which is something that uh, really sprung up when house and techno came about. Uh, you know, that can be done live on the spot where you have a, sam- a sample of a beat, a sample of this, you know, some other part, and you're putting them all together to create something entirely new. Eventually that became uh, recorded music, partly because the people doing it wanted to make money and the record companies wanted to make money. And so it launched a whole new kind of music that, again, went beyond the dance floor because it was recorded, you could hear it on the radio, you could buy it. The thing is, all of that, I knew a lot of that already, but it wasn't until I read this book, Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton, uh, written or published in 1999, that I really understood all of this, that I really saw, put it into context, and, and the rich history and development of DJing, and how important it is to music in general, and to the development of the art of music and production and, and everything that's really come since the 1970s, at least, has been influenced by DJing. And that not only have I been a DJ here and there and a fan of DJing, but that my mind has always worked like a DJ's mind. So even when I am producing music of my own, of other people's, particularly of my own, of Rex, that is not at all dance music. The way I think of it, the way I produce it, the way I put it together has those elements of you know, bringing in a layer of one thing, then pulling it out, of you know, dropping and breaking down and then popping back in and things like that. And that's just a terrible, you know, uh, terribly kind of disjointed way of describing how I produce music. And most of what I produce is like that, even again, if it doesn't sound like dance music or DJ type music. And not all artists, not all artists, not all DJs, I think, are artists. Performers, maybe, because if you're performing live or on the radio, you, hopefully, unless you're programmed, pre-programmed, you're choosing songs and you're talking in between and all all of that, and that's performance of of a sort, but you're not a musician or an artist. I think you become an artist when you start to make choices that shape what you're doing in a way that's different from the source material. And again, that could be any of the ways that I, many of the ways that I mentioned before, even if it's just playing you know, song after song, but you're juxtaposing types of music or finding little sounds in one song of one kind of music that link with another song in a completely different kind of music. Let's say a keyboard part in a funk or dance song that mixes with this uh, classic rock or prog rock song, which actually did happen a lot in the 70s. His book taught me that. There, I don't think there's any more comprehensive book on DJing out there than this one. And it was recently revised, as recently as far as I know, as 2016, because some of the references go that far, uh, which is great. And I don't know why there's not more information about this book online. The wiki page is, is sparing. There used to be a website connected to it that is now defunct. A compilation album was released 
that I think you can find somewhere online, but it's not that easy to find. And it has some of the key, you know, songs uh, through the history of DJing. I hope that somebody other than me, including me, shouts more about this book so that it is either revised again and brought back into the forefront or that more information is put out about it online. Because I think that it sheds so much light on so many things that even my dad, who's, you know, of course, quite a bit older, it goes so far back in history that you will find a connection to some kind of music you like in there because it goes through almost every kind of popular music and uh, even classical music. In fact, the very first song they mention is the very first song that was ever played by a DJ before the, the name DJ was even existent uh, on the radio, on the airwaves, very first, 1906 was a Handel song. George Friedrich Friedrich Handel movement, and followed by the the same guy doing a live violin performance, I believe. So same, there was again, even from the very beginning of radio, recorded music and live music side by side. Uh, Some finer points here. Jimmy, or the big points. Jimmy Savile in 1943 started a jazz dance party. And these, I believe both of these journalists are British, I want to say, or at least one of them is. And so this is uh, a book that covers almost all the world as far as DJ, but focuses very much on Britain, Europe, and the United States more than anything else. And that's where a lot of DJing came about with the exception of something I'm going to mention very soon. So that jazz dance party, I think, was one of the first uh, established dance parties where someone would be playing non-live music, which was considered super, super weird. Uh, the radio, that radio program spawned clubs, which, again, seemed weird not to have live music. Why am I going to a club to listen to music that I could hear on the radio or that I could buy myself? But people, it took... And to the point where, as early as 1947, the first dance club that we know of opened called Whiskey A Go-Go in Paris. Uh, In 1953, it was the first time two turntables were used. And that means that prior to that, it's like that one of the first kinds of DJs I mentioned, which was play a song, say what the song is, play the next song. Say what that song was, or say what the next song is coming. Play that song, you know, talk a little bit. A lot of talking. Uh, then in that late, late 50s, I believe, a type of group called sound systems sprung up in Jamaica. So this was not what we think of as a sound system, stereo system. It was a group of people playing music, primarily two people, usually the DJ who was called the selector, because they selected the records, and then a person who would be doing the announcing, which they called toasting. And often during that toasting, they would do cute, cool phrases or get people moving, you know, on the dance floor where they would rhyme and things like that. And, and uh, that eventually very heavily influenced the development and birth of hip hop. Toasting, look up toasting. So ska, rock steady and reggae were some of the, the, the types of music that sound systems would do. And sound systems crossed over eventually to the States in a big way in the 1970s. Uh, But before I get there, in the 1960s, some of the big things is mixers were uh, introduced. So you could use two turntables and be able to have different 
know, crossfade, which allowed for beat matching. It was the first time that that really happened. Um, uh, allowed for find, queuing up a record and finding where it starts so that when that other song ended, you could just release your finger and boom, the, the song starts right on cue. Uh, then we'd get to the 70s, and funk had been huge in the early 70s. Some of it developed into disco, and uh, disco morphed, and disco very, very heavily influenced hip-hop. And when you put together many, many kinds of music, but in particular the sound system music from Jamaica, which was all over the Bronx by then, and disco, and elements of rock, and, and other types of music... That's where that's where hip hop came from, and and the dance culture because break beats, you know, were used mostly so that dancers could dance or so that live DJs or MCs uh, could you know talk over it and get the crowd going, and of course those MCs developed into rappers and hip hop eventually hip hop artists etc. So huge uh, disco developed into high energy. And into uh, at the end of the 70s, when it kind of fell out of favor, it was still very big in, in the gay and underground communities. And uh, then morphed into new wave when electronic elements popped into dance music, which became the next big thing in the 80s. Electronic dance music, house and techno, Chicago and Detroit respectively, uh, U.S. and U.K. garage. U.K. garage is weird to me. Because first of all, when I think of garage music, I think of garage rock, like my previous uh, one of my previous uh, recent episodes of this on the Hives. But UK garages, that's not a thing at all. It's a mix of house, jungle, R&B, and dance pop, and some other things. Didn't know about it till I read this book. Hello, read this book. That's where where I learned about it. And then uh, more development of uh, electronic dance music with uh, industrial and acid house and acid jazz even. Uh, Raves would pop up. So, uh, you know, every few years or so, there's a new name for a dance club or what people did at dance clubs. Um, By the 90s, with Fatboy Slim and beyond, the DJs started to become stars in their own right. And this book talks about DJs becoming their own artists and their own stars and and how, like much of the music industry, all of the money rises to the top, so that a lot of uh, those interim decades, many, many different kinds of DJs could make a living DJing. That happened less and less, to the point where it's now kind of bifurcated between the superstar DJs, the DJs making no money at their art, and then DJs who do like weddings and stuff like that. Uh, and I'm sure there are other kinds, but that's what pops into my head. And quick note, also talked a lot about mini movements and scenes and sub-scenes from other parts of the world, like uh, Northern Soul in the north of England, which its whole purpose was to take obscure soul records, mostly from the States, and spin them. And the more obscure, the better. If you found one that someone else didn't find, you were considered a pretty popular DJ there. And then Popcorn Oldies, which I found out about this year or last year because a guy contacted me online and played one of my dad's old recordings. And that's big in Belgium still where they play a certain type of old rock and roll, uh, kind of a do like a, almost like a white doo-wop, kind of a soft, uh, you know, 
late 50s, early 60s would be a good benchmark for that. And they talk about a lot of those types of scenes in this book way more than I can remember. And since I don't have the book with me, I can't look it up. But you can, because you can go get the book. Now comes the third part of this. And yeah, we're running long because this is a, we're setting a precedent here. You know, I'm not going to be reviewing a book for every episode, obviously, but I wanted to give due to one of my favorite music books of all time. As you know, I have a DJ background in many ways. You can hear that influence all over what I do, from the proto-me song, Reflections, yeah, to in the early 90s, to my early mid-90s experiments in electronica, that, that I didn't do much with because I started branching out into rock. But my solo albums at the time did have uh, electronic uh, elements infused in there because I couldn't get away from it and because I think secretly it's something that I knew I was, uh, would, you know, was a big part of me. To the straight out electro power pop of Wreck. And man, every Wreck album has, has a DJ mind behind it. Period. That's the best way to say it. And you listen to it, whether it, they're straight-up power pop songs, rock songs, or electronic songs, you'll hear that. The flow, the breaks, the production, the sounds, the sonic exploration, the momentum. Something that I'm trying to work on in future work, which is uh, not every song has to be a dance song or have a steady beat, even though that's something that I you know, really prize. And listen to any of Rex's latest material from The Weird Objective, and you will totally hear the DJ influence in a huge way, especially on Syzygy for the Weird and Syncope for the Weird, but even the other albums from this past year. And the song I'm talking about today, which is a song from Syncope for the Weird called The Power of Repetition Everlasting. I've mentioned it before as a touchstone for some of the other artists that I've talked about. And the reason why I'm bringing it up now is because, yes, it is a hip-hop song, but it's kind of a glitch hip-hop song. It is a song that uses the idea of repetition, as in its title, both for its lyrics and for the music, but messes with it in certain ways, the way I think Fatboy Slim did and other artists like him, in that it's not just this rote repetition of the same thing. I make a point twice in the song to take the beat I'm using and change uh, in those little, mo- mo- the midpoint and the very end, change the tempo over and over and still somehow make it weave together under the same kind of umbrella tempo of the song. And that's to say that there's all different kinds of repetition. It's to say that you can break the mold of something but still keep momentum going and, you know, expectations, dashed expectations or, or what have you, Uh, can make for an even more exciting listening experience and honestly an even more exciting life if you do it right and that there are samples used in the power of repetition the way Fatboy Slim did with with one difference which is that I created all the samples Um, I use a sample of well not really fully created was on the subway and recorded a guy playing a ukulele and he must have been a little not all there and he was playing the same riff over and over which was just two notes and then two other notes, and that's it, back and forth for minutes on end. So I recorded it and mixed it into this song. Uh, I was working on somebody else's song, and I accidentally sped up a part of it, uh, a piano piece part of it, and I loved how it sounded. So I took that little clip of it and popped it into my song. And then I made some accidental vocal uh, sounds on one of the wild tracks I do. I always do a wild recorded track. 
And I liked some of that and I wove that in. And so those are just some of the samples that I used and the, and the repetitive elements that I used throughout this song, The Power of Repetition Everlasting. And I think that's the best way of describing how it ties in. Uh, listen to the song. I haven't decided if I'm doing this yet, so I'm putting you into the process. I may start ending these podcasts with the song that I talk about instead of my theme, which is my song too, but not the song I talk about, because that way you'll get to hear, hopefully hear the connection and maybe then go also listen to the artists that I'm talking about and see if you can find those connections there. Do you know Fatboy Slim? Do you remember when he was big? Do you, did you know him even beyond that? Did you know Norman Cook before and or after Fatboy Slim? Are you a fan of DJs, DJ style music, which can mean a lot, but in this case, these days, electronic dance music of some sort or anything like that? Have you heard of this book, Last Night a DJ Saved My Life? Or do you know the song that it's named after by In Deep? You should. It's an awesome freaking song. You know, and if not, have you not? Does this uh, make you want to go out and get the book and read it? Because if you're into this kind of music or if you're into the birth of jazz dance halls, if you're into the birth of, you know, psychedelic happenings and things like that, be well, just so well beyond dance music. This is a great book. I want to know your opinions. I want to know if you like my setup here, the people watching. And if you can't see it, do you desperately want to see it? And go over to youtube.com slash nickdematio or patreon.com slash music is not a genre and see it. I want to hear everything that you could possibly share with me because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you for your time and I'll talk to you next week. Wisdom through repetition is my mission. Like a Zen koan about a man fishing. More time doing, less time wishing. Success through failures is my tradition. The power of repetition. The power of repetition. The power of repetition. I got a learning curve that's as hard as hell. I start off slow, so it's hard to tell. And when I get going, you can feel me swell. And I drop like a bombshell. Power of repetition, the power of repetition, the power of repetition. My first name is a verb, verb is a cognate of the word word. Forget everything you ever heard, the best MCs are the biggest nerds. Power of repetition, power of repetition. Power of repetition. Power of repetition. Wisdom through repetition is my mission. More time doing, less time wishing. out and I got this down cold 10 years out and I still don't feel old 20 years down and I'm still going strong it's the everlasting now if you love it all along everlasting it's the everlasting everlasting 
never lesson now if you love it all along. Wisdom through repetition is my mission. Like a Zen koan about a man fishing. More time doing, less time wishing. Success through failures is my tradition. Two years out and I got this down cold. Ten years out and I still don't feel old. Twenty years down and I'm still going strong. It's the ever lesson now if you love it all along. Ever lesson Power of repetition Still don't feel old. Power of repetition. Power of repetition. See, I'm lesson now if you love it all along. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 